0: News continues. Let's hand it over for Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? All right, thanks, Anderson. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. The Kyle Rittenhouse trial took a major turn today. The 18-year-old who killed two, injured a third with a semi-automatic rifle during a riot in Kenosha, Wisconsin, took the stand in his own defense. That is a very rare choice. And he put on one hell of a show. However. He was almost upstaged by the sideshow of the judge fighting with the prosecutor. This thing came close to a mistrial today, with the judge going right at the prosecution's line of questioning.
1: I was astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post-arrest silence. That's basic law. It's been basic law in this country for 40 years, 50 years. I have no idea why you would do something like that.
0: Now, the main moments we have for you, and we're gonna go through because I think we likely saw today what could influence the jury most. And just to make sure we're all on the same page, this is the trial for what happened in the wake of the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin in August, 2020. Kyle Rittenhouse was then 17. He traveled to Kenosha From a neighboring state armed to help protect the community he said on the stand he wound up shooting three people he killed two the third survived this happened during a black lives matter protest that turned into a riot anthony huber and joseph rosenbaum are dead gage gross crates was injured the situation immediately politicized the left jumped on Rittenhouse as the face of white hate. The right made him the poster boy for white fright and self-defense, but now at trial, notions from the left and right must stay outside and all we know is what can be made as reasonable by the prosecutor. We only know what the prosecution can show. In the instant case, that means can the prosecution show that Rittenhouse is guilty of murdering and injuring beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the surrounding circumstances are not helpful to Rittenhouse. He claims he was at the protest to help, to provide medical support. But he was posing as an EMT, he's not one and he brought an AR-15 he wasn't allowed to have to a place he was not from with no right or authority to protect any property. Now he says a property owner asked for his help. That is not what the owner says. Nevertheless, for the jury, the key part is likely not why he was there, but whether it was reasonable for him to shoot three men in self-defense. Early notions, were that rittenhouse was chasing down and shooting at people those were reversed by him on the stand today he told a very different story he sounded scared got choked up while recalling the fatal encounter with one of the victims joseph rosenbaum listen
2: i was cornered from in front of me with mr zeminski and there were
3: There were three, three people right
4: there. Take
3: a
2: deep breath, huh? <laughs>
1: That's what I... That's where I run. <laughs>
0: Rittenhouse claims he was ambushed. He says he was cornered and did what he had to do to stop the deceased from attacking him. He testified that Rosenbaum, seen here, threatened to kill him twice earlier in the night.
2: He screamed, "If sorry for my language, he screamed, if I catch any of you alone, I'm going to kill you. He said, I'm going to cut your hearts out and kill. I'm not going to repeat the second word, but kill you and words.
0: Now, is it reasonable to believe that someone saying they're going to cut your heart out on a street is something that you have to prepare to defend your life against? The jury will decide victim or vigilante. Now, The reason that this trial took a major turn today was in part because of Rittenhouse's testimony. It's very unusual for a defendant to take the stand in their own defense, let alone in a homicide case, let alone in a double homicide case. But there was something else. The cross-examination of him by the prosecution and the cross-examine of the prosecution by the judge. But first, the prosecution taking on Rittenhouse. Listen.
5: Joseph Rosenbaum never touched you in any way during that incident, correct? He touched my gun. He didn't touch your body in any way, did he? No. He didn't kick you? No. He didn't punch you? No. Other than that plastic bag, he didn't throw anything at you? No. He didn't have a gun on him? No. He didn't have a knife on him? No. He didn't have a chain on him? No. He didn't have a bat on him? No. He didn't have any weapon of any
2: kind, correct? other than him grabbing my gun, no.
5: Well, he didn't have possession of that gun. You did.
0: This was effective. The prosecutor getting to admit the first guy he shot and killed had no weapon. That means, did he have to use the force he did to defend himself in the situation? Here's more from the cross-exam.
5: Everybody that you shot at that night, you intended to kill,
2: correct? I didn't intend to kill them. I intended intended to stop the people who were attacking me. By killing them? I did what I had to do to stop the person who was attacking me.
5: By killing them?
2: Two of them passed away, but I stopped the threat from attacking me.
5: By using deadly force?
2: I used deadly force.
5: That you knew was going to kill?
2: I didn't know if it was going to kill them, but I used used deadly force to stop the threat that was attacking me.
5: You intentionally used deadly force against Joseph Rosenbaum, correct? Yes. You intentionally used deadly force against the man who came and tried to kick you in the face, correct? You intentionally used deadly force against Anthony Huber, correct? Yes. You intentionally used deadly force against Gage Grosskreutz, correct? Yes. With regard to Joseph Rosenbaum. You fired four shots at him, correct? Yes. You intended to kill him, correct?
2: I didn't intend to kill him. I intended to stop the person who was attacking me and trying to steal my gun.
0: Now, this is why a defendant does not go on the stand, let alone a young one. Because saying that you used deadly force on purpose, that you were aware, deadly force inherently means what it sounds like. Force that you're saying you understand can kill the other person. Was the threat that he faced something that made using deadly force reasonable? That last part is going to be a problem, I'm telling you. Self-defense in Wisconsin is about imminent threat. You have to fear to use deadly force that someone is going to really hurt you, serious bodily injury, or death. Was it reasonable under these circumstances? Is someone trying to take your gun that, if that's what even was happening? Was it reasonable to believe that that may happen? That's the standard, to use deadly force in Wisconsin. He admits he intended to use deadly force, so he is going to have to convince a jury, or the jury will have to feel convinced, that it was reasonable. The jury has the difficult job here of balancing two very different faces of a killer. The one that I'm showing you now, weepy, cherubic, child, Kyle, fearing for his life, being pursued by angry men. Or the cool customer in Kenosha that night, who was described as cold and calm and telling officers that he had just killed people, that he was using live rounds pretending that he was one of them, saluting them, taking water from them, hanging out, taking pictures, proud of his involvement. This matters for him. This matters for the victims, their families. But the verdict is going to reverberate far beyond the walls of this courthouse. So it matters. Let's take it to the better minds. Criminal defense attorney, CNN legal analyst, Joey Jackson. Marilyn Mosby. Baltimore City State's attorney, prosecutor of the infamous Freddie Gray case, 2015. I start with you, Counselor uh, Mosby. It's good to have you. Um, Nice speaker. Dicey call to put a defendant on uh, the stand, especially in a double homicide case. Was it the right move?
3: So I think overall, I think it was very much the defense strategy to put Kyle Rittenhouse House on the stand today and to portray him as the innocent young man not looking for any trouble, but rather vested into the safety of his community that never wanted to resort to killing anybody. This was the reason, in my opinion, that we got that disingenuous, and, and this is my opinion, disingenuous breakdown on the stand that the jury could easily sympathize with. However, I was really, really, really disappointed with the judge. That did not allow the prosecutor to call into question the sincerity of Rittenhouse his, and his sentiments and his credibility about the killings. And I have to say that, honestly, I felt like Rittenhouse opened the door with his mental and emotional state and breakdown that could and should have been challenged in light of him posing four months later after the shootings and selfies with the Proud Boys wearing a free as F T-shirt with with cuts against his current state, which totally cuts against his current state of emotion and and overall credibility. But I would say if you ask what the call is, this case will come down, as you've already indicated, to whether the jury believes whether it was reasonable for him to use and and necessitate that deadly force. And so, yes, it was effective to have him on the stand, at least providing justification for his actions. He testified that Rosenbaum tried to take his gun. He, He was going to be given, if he didn't take his gun, he felt like he would be potentially killed. So I felt like the defense was effective, but I also felt like the prosecution overall did its best as they could into calling to question Rittenhouse credibility. Mm. They established mm. that he lied about being a certified EMT. He lied about going there to protect the businesses and then ended up leaving the property to antagonize the protesters. He lied about not going there looking for trouble, but he and his armed friends were there pointing guns at people. He lied to the crowd when he said that the first man that he shot had a gun. He lied to the crowd when he said that he didn't shoot anyone knowing that he had shot several people. And I'd argue if I was a prosecution that he's lying now to the jury and that he's now that he's claiming that he was in fear of his life from two unarmed people who he shot and killed in close range with an AR-15 rifle.
0: So Joey, uh, obviously, counselor uh, frames the seminal issue here. Will the jury believe that it was reasonable for Kyle Rittenhouse to use deadly force, which he admits is exactly what he thought was going to happen when he pointed the weapon and fired it. He didn't think I was going to hit him in the leg. He didn't think it would just hurt him. He says, I used deadly force. Do you think it is reasonable when these men are coming at you and one of them puts the hand on the gun? How does that play? plays in a big way Chris good to be with you excellently argued by counselor Marilyn
6: Mosby of course can tell she's a prosecutor uh, of long-standing <laughs> I see things a different way as a defense attorney let me tell you how I think it was a game changer to put him on the stand for the following reasons number one you humanize him behind whatever he did the ever, ever shots he fired he's a human being he's a person who feels miserable about what he did there'll be the debate about whether they were crocodile tears about whether he was doing that it was an act etc but you want to introduce your client to the jury and let them know what they do. He takes graffiti off of places and all that other stuff. Very important. More important, number two. He explained his uses of force. If someone raises their arms and has a gun in their hand is one of the people that he shot and killed did, right? The fact is, excuse me, he shot this person and he shot him in the arm, actually. He didn't kill the person who had the gun. Right. But if they have an actual gun, you're going to shoot. I don't know that you need more. Was he pressing the trigger at the time he indicated he shot because he was you talk about imminency of the threat chris what's more imminent than that but he's if, got
0: three if right exactly. So has to the i want to play some sound for okay it, to um because you know i know i gotta stop you when you get on a roll <laughs> because you're all about momentum mosby he's all about momentum now let me play let me play uh, a little bit of sound that gives context to what you're arguing right now play p1 about rittenhouse on firing shots after shooting joseph rosenbaum uh the first victim
2: who died not a crowd, a mob was chasing me. As I'm running past Mr. Huber, he's holding his skateboard like a baseball bat and he swings it down and I block it with my arm. As I'm getting up, he strikes me in the neck with his skateboard a second time. Then what happened? He grabs my gun and I can feel it pulling away from me and this I can feel the strap starting to come off my my body. And What do you do then? I fire one shot. As I'm lowering my weapon, I look down, and then Mr. Grosskreutz, he lunges at me with his pistol pointed directly at my head.
0: Now this is his best scenario, except Joey. In putting in those details, we never saw a picture of him having any injury, and you would have one if you got hit in the neck with a baseball bat, you know, slash skateboard, the way he describes it. However, uh, to your point, the guy has a gun, he's getting hit, is that enough?
6: I think so, because number one, you talk about the person who had the gun. That wasn't the clip there. But so you justifies that. Now you pivot to the skateboard. As Marilyn Mosby knows, because prosecutors do it all the time, anything could be a dangerous weapon. If you're using a skateboard as a baseball bat to hit someone, that's problematic. The final person that he shot was grabbing at his weapon. And so, yes, that provides what you need in order to establish self-defense. Last point. Consider the context. Consider the context of the people who were angry. There's fires. Tensions are flaming. People are saying to get you. I need you, etc. And after that, what does he do? He turns himself in. So you lose the element of consciousness of guilt. If he did something wrong, why wouldn't he run away? He didn't do that. He went to the police to surrender himself. So I think on balance, they made that is the defense, the case for self-defense. And I would be very, I, I mean, I'd be surprised if he were convicted in this case.
0: Mosby, give me a quick counter.
3: So the only thing I will say is that it's ultimately is going to come down to credibility. And that's why that sort of ruling and admissibility of that Four months later, his credibility, it was so incredibly important. I think that when you look at whether or not it was a a life or death matter, I think you have to consider the fact that you have a young white boy openly carrying and illegally possessing an AR-15 loaded with 30 rounds to a Black Lives Protest matter in order to defend businesses, not his business, not his life, not his liberty, but defending someone else's property for rioters, which are codenamed for criminals, where he subsequently shoots and kills two unarmed people. Wounds another, and yet he approaches the police, his arms up, AR-15 strapped to his body, and the police, they drive past him. Why? Because he's in in no way, form, or fashion. is this young white boy carrying the AR-15 who just shot three people was perceived as a threat. And so the question really becomes, now, how does he get the advantage of hiding behind a broad, disingenuous interpretation of self-defense and the Second Amendment?
0: I'll tell you what. That judge would have never allowed you to say half of that, Mosby. I'll <laughs> nope. tell you that right now. Uh, but I appreciate you saying it here. There are points that need to be made. Joey, thank you for the analysis. Always. Joey Jackson, Marilyn Mosby, the best. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Chris. you, All right, more to come. Uh, this is a heavy day that happened in court. The judge was very fired up. We don't know this judge. Is this just the way he is? Was he right on the law in what he was doing with that prosecutor? Not once, but multiple times. Now that's an issue too. Where is the line? When should he have dismissed the jury and just had a conversation? Did he do it the right way? That's the question. We have someone who knows the system very well, a retired state Supreme Court justice. What is her take? Her honor, next. Kyle Rittenhouse sobbing on the stand wasn't really what determined the state of play today in that trial. It was a big factor, don't get me wrong. But there was this sideshow with the judge going at the prosecutor multiple times, and he was doing it in a state of high dudgeon. He questioned the timing of the prosecutor's questioning about whether or not Rittenhouse refused to speak after his arrest, saying that, hey, that's his Fifth Amendment right. But the way he said it, he was very hot about it. He got angry at the prosecutor. He, he thought he was going around one of his rulings and trying to sneak
1: in evidence. Take a look. I, I was a, astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post-arrest silence. That's basic law. It's been basic law in this country for 40 years, 50 years. I have no idea why you would do something like that.
7: Before Don't get my...
1: brazen with me. You know very well that an attorney can't go into these types of areas when the judge has already ruled without asking outside the presence of the jury to do so. So don't give me that. I don't believe you. There better not be another incident. I'll take the motion under advisement.
0: Now look, that is not usual behavior for a judge. This judge is the longest serving circuit court judge. Okay. 75 years old. He's been there a long time. This is his reputation. Now, that means the prosecutor should have known who he was dealing with. But you remember, this is in front of the jury. They're hearing this. How can they feel about the prosecutor? Now, here's a little secret uh, when it comes to legal analysis on television. If somebody doesn't know the job or know the situation they're talking about, they don't have much credibility. You are very lucky because you have someone who is not just a judge from that state, who is not just a Supreme Court judge, but is a judge who did trial court for a dozen years and did homicide cases. So this justice checks every box. Retired Justice Janine Geski again, served on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Marquette University law professor. Great to have you, Your Honor.
8: Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here.
0: What's mm. your take?
8: Well, Everybody's nerves are frayed. That's my first take. Um, you know, in terms of the judge's reaction today, um, I think there are a couple of things that are going on. One of the things that happens during a high-profile, tough homicide case is everybody gets more tired and more angry and more on edge as the trial goes on, and and I think that's happening in this trial. Um, Judge Trader, I actually was appointed two years. Um, earlier than Judge Schrader to the bench. So if I'd stayed on the bench, I'd be longer than him on the bench. He is a tough, no-nonsense judge. That is his reputation. He was angry today, and I think rightfully so. Um, The the risk of mentioning or alluding to a defendant's right to remain silent is somehow inferring guilt Hmm. is one of those basic rules, as he stated.
5: Why do you think the prosecutor did it?
8: I, you know, I think the prosecutor was looking at it in a different light. He was trying to use what happened to say that Kyle had adjusted his statements because he had heard all these witnesses. And so he had the opportunity, his first chance to talk about it was under after her having heard all the witnesses all day. And I think he was thinking along that line and probably was not thinking about, you know, Kyle's right to remain silent. I think the judge just saw it. The judge is very protective of his record. He is, it's clear to me with his rulings, he does not want to give Rittenhouse a grounds
0: for appeal if he gets convicted. And so he's being very careful in his rulings. Right on the law. Okay. But right in terms of how he handled it, would you have done it the yeah, same way? Yeah, well,
8: <laughs> that's why. That's why I was saying everybody's nerves are frayed. He's obviously very um, tired and exhausted. My my response to that is the answer is no. You know, the judge sets the tone in the courtroom. The judge has to be able to to bring tempers down, and he was just exploding with rage over what he believed the prosecutor to have done you know and and legally i think he was right but i but you know all that does is excite everybody else and people that are watching you know, are thinking, you know, is he biased because of this anger? I think he was just simply anger, angry about the ruling. So there's nothing legally wrong with what he did, but I think stylistically it's a dangerous thing for a judge to lose his temper during a
0: trial. Do you think there is a risk that going after the prosecutor that much in the most important phase of this trial may have uh, colored the perception of the jury? Well,
8: i most of this was done outside the presence of the jury. The problem we we have multiple problems with this case, but one of them is that we live in a world of social media. The jury has been told not to not to look at social media to not get in touch. We can pray that they all not do that, but it's pretty tempting. Um, they wouldn't know most of that. They probably know that the judge is tough been tough on the prosecutor. I don't think it's gonna change anything with the jury. The jury's gonna take a look at Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony and some of those videos and make a determination. And I think it is in part gonna come down to his credibility today.
0: Justice Geske, I appreciate you very much. Uh, You also have a reputation uh, and it was (laughs) that you handled things the right way. You were right on the law and you were right in your demeanor as well. And that's why you were the perfect guest tonight. Thank you for adding value to the audience. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. All right. Be well. All right. I got breaking news for you. A federal court has just delivered another ruling on Donald Trump's fight to keep documents secret from the January 6th committee. The latest decision right after the break. This is CNN Breaking News. Donald Trump denied again. He went back to the same judge who denied him yesterday and said, are you sure? And Judge Chutkin said, yes. I'm sure. And the reasoning is interesting. She says, look, they don't deliver this information, the National Archives, until the 12th. And between now and then, you can appeal. If you want to go and appeal my order, that's fine, but I'm not changing my order for you. Let's go to Norm Eisen. Norm, this should not come of a surprise. The question is, why did they go back to the same judge a day later and ask her to overrule
7: herself? Um, Chris, thanks for having me back. Um, You know, the Uh, Donald Trump and his lawyers um, are not exactly famous for their legal acumen. The shrewder move would have been to go straight to the D.C. Circuit. There is an argument that under the federal rules of appellate procedure, they're required to exhaust efforts in the district court. But Judge Chutkin clearly was having none of it. They tried to dress up uh, their argument as something different, Chris, as a stay. Judge Judkin rejected that out of hand. She said, you want another injunction? I just told you, you had a junk case, goodbye. Uh, and so uh, they fail yet again. Now we'll see what happens. They'll undoubtedly rush to the Court of Appeals to the DC Circuit. We'll see what happens there.
0: What do you think happens there?
7: Well, um, a lot will depend on the panel of three judges that they draw. There have been different panels uh, deciding things lately, Um, uh, so uh, it's possible that they'll get a very short administrative stay while there's rapid briefing, emergency briefing, on whether there should be an injunction pending appeal. And Chris, we've talked about this before on the show, this is one of the most urgent questions Uh, that is facing us as a legal system, and I think as a democracy today, if Donald Trump is allowed to run out the clock with his usual strategy of delay, lose all the battles but win the war by running the clock out, that means that the committee may not get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th. They won't be able to prevent the next insurrection. It won't be able to consider legislation. And Chris. Donald Trump is still doing it, that same incitement, that same big lie. So it's of the utmost urgency that the D.C. Circuit decide this immediately. I think they should rip the Band-Aid off. This is a garbage case. No injunction.
0: How would he run off, uh, the, run out the clock, assuming that they take it, uh, three-judge panel, they, the fancy way of saying it is en banc uh, for lawyers. It means that you, know, you get the whole three-judge three, uh, panel. If they do it, Who's to say that the Supreme Court would take this case? Uh,
7: I don't think the Supreme Court will take it, Chris. And Trump's play here, what he's going to try to do, and again, the D.C. Circuit must not countenance it, and uh, the parties must insist that this not happen, what happened in some of the litigation I was involved in, in the first Trump impeachment, the McGahn case. He gets a stay pending appeal, and then there's a long appellate process There's briefing, there's argument, multiple arguments. Before you know it, years have gone by. We can't allow that. These issues are too important to the health uh, and the very survival of our democracy. So it can be decided quickly. Watergate, a little over three months from subpoena to Supreme Court decision. We can go fast here, we should, we must.
0: A professor like you, Norm, once taught me that equity abhors a forfeiture, meaning that the appellate court is going to have to say whether or not the archives uh, can give it over on Friday, the 12th, or whether or not they have to wait. So we should get an answer quickly. When we do, I will beg you to come on and review it with me. Norm Eisen, thank you. Thanks, Chris. All right. The president took a victory lap today on the infrastructure bill. Yet even in triumph, he acknowledged the hard reality of an economic problem, inflation is a problem. Why? What is it? How did it happen? How did we get here? And what can he really do? And what does that mean for the rest of us? We're all jumping ahead and just using this as a political football. Nobody knows anything. So let's fix that. Next. You don't mean me or the federal government to tell you the prices are going up. You see it every time you go to the grocery store. It's harder to feed your family. Beef, 20% up. Pork, 14% up. Prices up on just about everything. Cars, medical care, all up. Medical care, not that much. Cars, a lot, especially used cars. Gas, high. Keeping a roof over your head, up 3.5%. Inflation, it's worse than we've seen in more than three decades. Why? Let's take a look at how we got here. The Labor Department's Consumer Price Index, that's a CPI, right? That's a part of the reality. All right, It confirms it for you. You already feel it. The money's not going as far as it used to. And they can tell you that wages are up, but when you adjust for inflation, they're not. So voters, like in Virginia, they say this is our biggest issue because this is what affects my family most right now. But rather than listening to what you're saying, too many in power are trying to tell you what it means. The truth, almost none of them know what they're saying. The president has spent months offering up higher wages as a counterweight. Listen. When it comes to the economy we're building, rising wages aren't a bug, they're a feature. Look, wages are up about a half a percent. It's not enough to keep up with inflation, okay? It's like wages actually fell 1.2% in the last year. Inflation this year was like, you know, it was like 6%. Um, So yeah, they're up, but they're not really up, okay? That's political speak. That's how we get in trouble in terms of respecting our leaders. Meanwhile, The right is hammering Democrats, claiming this proves government is broken.
1: Despite rising inflation and increasing prices, the president is still marching forward with his vision of big government. Biden has forgotten
6: about the inflation that's biting the budgets of families all throughout our country.
7: We simply cannot afford any more Bidenomics. It's
0: all BS, okay? The stick that they're swinging at the GOP? is rotten. The tax cut, the tax cuts in 2016 that you didn't pay for helped fuel inflation. And they sat silent on the same problems that they're carping about now when the R's and D's were reversed in power. Now, how do we get out of it? It's gonna take people who can see past the politics and deal with the reality. We have one, former Treasury, Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Now he's made some waves on the left by speaking out against his own party exactly on this issue. Let's talk about the fix, next. Last time, inflation was this high, 6.3% year over year, November, 1990. A year later, it was less than half that, but the political damage may have been done. By November of 92, Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush, read my lips, no new taxes. Once taxes were necessary to deal with the inflationary environment, things went sideways. My next guest would go on to be Clinton's Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers. Now, in fairness to him, he was one of the few Democrats who raised concerns about inflation back when Biden and the Democrats were pushing through the COVID stimulus bill. In fact, Joe Manchin was basing some of his concern on what Larry Summers had said. Welcome back to Primetime, sir, good to have you. Good to be with you. So uh, first, let's deal with uh, your prognostication here, which is inflation doesn't come fast, doesn't leave fast. Uh, this is gonna be with us for a while. Listen to J- Janet uh, Yellen spinning a different future for us.
9: I think he's wrong. I don't think we're about to lose control of inflation. I agree, of course, we are going through a period of inflation that's higher than Americans have seen in a long time. And it's something that's obviously a concern and worrying them, but we haven't lost control. And as we make further progress on the pandemic, I expect these bottlenecks to Um, subside. Americans will return to the labor force as conditions improve. And uh, remember, the spending that we did that partially has caused uh, this high demand for goods, it's been very important in making sure that the pandemic hasn't had a scarring effect on American workers. It's given them enough income and support to get through this without, while still being able to put food on their tables and keep roofs over their heads.
0: What is Yellen weighing in a way that you are not?
4: Look, I've got great respect for uh, Secretary Yellen. But you know, the administration's budget and the administration's forecast with this stimulus was that this year we'd have 2% inflation, and it's likely to come in three times uh, that. I think they're just not recognizing just how much demand is being created by the tremendous wall of money, 15% of GDP in one year that they released uh, last uh, spring. And that, in conjunction with a central bank the the fed that keeps the interest rate at zero that's buying all kinds of uh bonds and mortgages when the middle of a housing uh boom just sets off a dynamic then the thing about inflation is you start chasing your tail rising inflation uh, of inputs leads firms to raise their prices that leads other firms to raise their prices and uh, the whole thing spirals. It can be broken, but it needs to be broken by some kind of dramatic action. And those kinds of dramatic actions often cause uh, recessions. So I think we're speeding down the road at a really rapid rate. It's kind of a downhill uh, road, and it's not going to be so easy uh, to put the brakes on uh, here. And that's why I'm concerned. And I think the Uh, I think that the policymakers in Washington, unfortunately, have almost every month been behind the curve. They said it was transitory. It doesn't look so transitory. They said it was due to a few specific factors. It doesn't look to be a few specific factors. They said when September came and people went back to school that the labor force would uh, grow and it didn't happen. So I hope they're right. I really Very, very much hope that the scenario that Secretary Yellen uh, sketches proves to be uh, the right one. My experience is that you should hope for the best and plan for something much less than the best. And I think that means uh, stronger actions by the Fed. It means the administration has to be thinking about inflation. I think it's great what they're doing to decongest the ports and to get more through the ports but I think it would be much more important if they removed some of the tariffs that are holding up prices. They did a set of things to encourage energy production so that gasoline prices uh, could uh, come uh, could come down. If they were very conscious of costs as they regulated or as they had procurement rules about Buy America and uh, the like, I think they've got to focus on the things they're doing what about the spending be, bill, Larry? I think it's fine. Uh, you know, Chris, if you look at it, the 10 years of the two spending bills together, A, are less than the one year of what they did last spring. And B, unlike what they did last spring, are paid for by uh, tax increases. So I don't think that's an inflation Uh problem. I think a lot of it is vitally needed uh, investments in the future of our country. Look, uh, why should it be the case that it takes me 20 20 more minutes to take a flight from Boston to Washington than it did when I started on the route 40 uh, years ago? That's all about our lagging infrastructure. And there are a ton of other uh, examples. I think we should be making it easier for people to put their kids in daycare and do you think uh, they means tested these
0: things enough though because that's one of the major criticisms one of the major criticisms uh among democrats you know the more moderate democrats is you didn't means test all these policies that there are too many people who don't need the help that's going to come in this bill uh that will get help that they don't need that are making money that you know they shouldn't need this kind of support you think that's fair
4: criticism i'd probably rather see more emphasis on public investment had a little less emphasis on transfer payments. I think that's right. But overall, if you gave me my choice, uh, up or down on this bill, I think up is uh, much better than down. Though yes, I'd like to see more of it be public investment. I'd like to see less of it be transfer payments. I'd like to see more revenue, inc- more revenue increases. You know, people like me, like you, Chris, who've been very, very fortunate, uh in life or in the top small part of the income distribution, we're gonna get tax cuts because of the changes that are being made. Right. We shouldn't be getting tax cuts at a moment uh at a moment like uh this that's probably the biggest change right uh that I make in this bill. But yes, I mean that's a much bigger it's a much bigger deal true to be raising our taxes than it is to be taking money from somebody who's making ninety thousand dollars uh a year i'd much rather focus on uh doing more for those at the very high end larry summers more to rate at at the very high end
0: larry summers thank you very much thanks for putting it in perspective and talking to us about how we get out of it be well thank you all right we'll be right back with the handoff all right thank you for watching time for the big show don lemon tonight with its star d lemon